Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Here's our big idea. Following Jesus' direction leads to the deepest rest and the most worthwhile work. Following Jesus' direction leads to the deepest rest the most worthwhile work. I'm going to dive in in John 21. We're going to see just two basic movements. First, that Jesus reveals himself for rest in verses 1 through 14. And then in 15 through 25, that Jesus calls Peter and John to work. So you can see this natural rhythm that we have here. We have rest and work, rest and work. You know, there's kind of a crisis going on right now in America. I don't know if you've seen these trends. We have two different things going on. There was kind of the, what do they call it? The great uh, um, checkout, the great uh, resignation. See, Brian? Brian's like our, you know, podcast listener out there that knows everything. But the great resignation, right? We check out. We, we resigned from our jobs. So following pandemic, we, just, we were looking for more from our workforce or from our, our labor. And then at the same time, there was this trend called quiet quitting. I don't know if you've heard about this, but it's the idea that I, I'm not really valuing my job, so I'm going to show up and I'm going to give a limited amount of effort in my position because I don't really value the work. We have this kind of crisis of work that's happening right now. And meanwhile, we have employers that are asking more for less. They're they're asking more hours, more dedication, more presence from their employees, while also promising less benefits, less wage, less kind of buy-in. And so there's this tension that happens within our American workforce. And in the midst of that, we, we have this section in John chapter 21, where Jesus offers true rest to his disciples and then pushes them out to true work. It reminds us that there's this balance between rest and work that needs to happen, right? That we're made to rest, to take what the Old Testament would call Sabbath, and also to kind of engage in life-giving, wholehearted effort in work and kingdom building. And so our big idea, following Jesus' direction, leads to the deepest rest and the most worthwhile work. Let's dive into John chapter 21. If you're with us this morning, you're new to us, there's pew Bibles in front of you. It's page 907 in John 21, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Debedee, and two Zebedee, excuse me, and two other of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. 
right? See, we see here in these verses, verses 1 through 14, that Jesus is going to reveal himself for rest. And that's exactly the way we start in verse 1. Uh, John says that Jesus revealed himself in this way. And we see in verse 14, he closes out this section with the same wording. This is how Jesus has revealed himself a third time. And so what happens in verse 3 is that Peter decides he is going to go fishing. Now, you and I think of fishing as a recreational effort, but Peter thinks of fishing as an occupational effort. He thinks of it as life and vitality. And so Peter decides that he's going to go fishing because he's returning to his former profession. He's turning away from this life of discipleship that he's engaged in for these three years. He feels like because of his denial of Jesus, he has been put on the shelf, as it were, and now he is invited back to his former life. But what happens in verse 3 is that they don't catch anything. Some of you had this experience. This has been every fishing trip I've ever gone on. They catch nothing. But look what happens in verses 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the night on the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. Jesus reveals himself here uniquely. They don't recognize Jesus. That's what it says in verse 4. They did not know that it was Jesus. And so Jesus shows up on the shoreline. He becomes directive, and he says, you haven't caught any fish, little children. You haven't caught anything. Throw yourself or throw your nets on the right side of the boat. And so sure enough, that's what they do, and they haul in this massive haul of fish. And by that, John and Peter recognize this to be Jesus. That's what happens in verse 7. John says, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter hears this, he puts on his two-piece bathing suit, right? He goes and jumps directly into the lake and swims to the shore. And John's left kind of dragging the fish back to the shore, but they're so excited to see Jesus. See, that's the picture that we see here. These two disciples are desperate to see Jesus. We look at John and Peter's response when, they, when the, it settles upon them that Jesus is now back in their midst. What do they do? They're jumping into the lake. They're rowing the boat ashore. These men haven't anticipated that Jesus will meet them where they are, but when he does, they are so excited. I don't know if you've ever seen these videos. They show them all the time in social media stuff, but videos of when a soldier comes home, a, a woman soldier, a male soldier will come home and see their family, and there's just this authentic joy and surprise at the return of this soldier. But that's where I get the feeling of, of, of these disciples and their response to Jesus. This visit from Jesus marks a much-needed restoration in the life of these two disciples. If you remember back to the last time that we heard Peter speak, it was in John chapter 18. And John has been, or Peter has been so 
sure that he would give his life for Jesus, that he would actually lay down his life in defense of Jesus. And so the last time we actually heard him talk were his three denials of knowing Jesus at his trial. And John also is there. John stands idly by this charcoal fire, warming himself while Jesus goes through this false accusation. So these two disciples need the presence of Jesus. And notice what Jesus does. He directs them to legitimate rest. Verse 9, when they got on the land, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them with the fish. fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. You know, it stands out to me that every time that Jesus has showed up in this book of John, he's met the need of his disciples. Remember back in John chapter 20, his disciples were afraid, huddled into this room, and Jesus comes, and the first words out of his mouth are, peace be with you. And he breathes out the Holy Spirit upon them, and he meets them in their fear. Here Jesus shows up to these work-weary disciples who've not slept through the night, and he comes with the provision of bread, fish, and a warm charcoal fire. It's interesting, the last time we saw anything talked about with a charcoal fire was Peter's denial in chapter 18. And here Jesus is with a warm fire, with fish, and with bread. See, Jesus meets his weary disciples with provision, In fact, it's the perfect setting then for Jesus and Peter and John to have this heart-to-heart talk that they need to have. And so in verse 12, he beckons them, come, have breakfast. Both statements, verses 10 and 12, are these gentle-hearted commands for them to come and to rest. See, this morning for us, Jesus brings us true rest. You know what we do? We try to create rest, and we only create chaos. Have you ever felt that and experienced that? It seems like every endeavor we do to create rest actually creates more tension. Maybe you've ever had that experience where you go on vacation and you come back more tired than when you left, right? You you need a vacation from your vacation, You go to the beach and you've got the young ones there and you have to like go in the car for 20 hours and you're loaded up and you're packed everything and you've been packing for weeks on end and finally you get to the point where you're going to pack up and you spend 20 hours in a car, which is just brilliant, right? And so you get there and then you're finally like, yeah, let's go, let's go to the beach and you go to the beach and there's sand everywhere, right? 
we went uh, a couple of years ago, we went to Florida and we were so pumped about this particular beach that we were going to. And we showed up and you kind of walk over the crest and everything looks green. Like the water is filled. Like it looks like swamp thing lives there, right? Because there was this summer grass that grew just for like one week at a time. But I'm telling you, I don't mean to get too personal, but it got everywhere. Like if you went in the water, you found like an outline of yourself later on, like in the day. It was just kind of gross, right? But every time you try to provide rest for yourself, it ends up complicating things. You plan a night where you're going to uh, just binge watch some show that you've been waiting to watch. And sure enough, it's like it doesn't go as planned. There's interruptions. There's all of these things. Oftentimes, our forms of rest offer diminishing returns. And so what happens is we need more wine, we need more coffee, we need longer vacations, we need more binge watching, and what's intended to be restful becomes a work in itself. But what Jesus holds out to us is this promise of true rest. In fact, if you were to kind of turn with me to the, to the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 3 and 4, the author of Hebrews uses the Israelites in the Old Testament in the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings to describe what true rest is. Now, you don't have to turn there. I, I know I said if you were to, but don't turn there right now, because what happens there is that the author of Hebrews is describing a true rest that the Israelites did not enter because they entered it or they failed to enter it through faith. Faith is our access to true and genuine rest. Read this in in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 10. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God rested from his. What true rest is, is that we rest from ourselves. We rest from having to earn favor with God. We rest from having to do all of these things to please God. And that is truly restful for our souls. The thing that Jesus is extending to Peter and John is not just bread and fish and a charcoal fire. It has deeper, more significant meaning. So Jesus gives rest. But he also brings restoration. We're going to see this in verses 15 through 25, where Jesus calls Peter and John to work. So look with me in, in John 21, 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these, these fish? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying that, this he said to him, follow me. See, Jesus asks, what we have is this repetition 
that happens three times. It has the same questions, the same answer, and then the same response. And so Jesus asks Peter the same question, do you love me? And he starts off with this phrase, do you love me more than these? Specifically, Peter, do you love me more than fish? Do you love me more than these fish that are on the fire, these 153 fish that you seem to have caught? I mean, that's what John's been talking about this whole chapter, right? He's been talking about Peter deciding to go on this fishing trip. He's used three different words to describe fish. There's small fish and big fish and other kinds of fish. And the whole thing has been about fishing. And so Jesus turns to him and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than fish? Do you love me more than fishing? Jesus is asking Peter if he would rather return to his old life or or come and give his life in service. And remember, fisherman Peter was this fisherman by by trade, and so this return to fishing wasn't just recreation; it's this kind of return to his former life. In fact, if you look in verse one of chapter twenty-one, we see this: that all of this happened on the Sea of Tiberias. The last time we saw Jesus at the Sea of Tiberias was in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is Jesus' impossible teaching that if you don't eat his body and drink his blood, you have no part in him. And, And so Jesus is interacting with this group, and they start to kind of just one by one trickle away. They say, this is a hard teaching. Who can follow it? And finally, it's just the 12 disciples, and Jesus looks at them and said, are you also going to leave? And Peter speaks up and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, it's in that context, in that place, that Jesus is inviting them to say, hey, do you love me more than these? Are you still here, Peter? Are you still following? So he asks the same question, and Peter gives the same answer. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says this in verse 15 and 16 and 17. Peter gives the same response in all three occasions, and it centers upon Jesus' presupposed knowledge of Peter's love. He's got this pre-knowledge of Peter's love. You know that I love you. And it's really stated with such clarity in verse 17. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Peter has this little theology lesson about Jesus. Jesus knows everything. You know that I love you. What we get then is this position. Peter recognizes it. We recognize it this morning. Jesus knows his love. But what he's doing is drawing the poison out of this wound. He's addressing Peter's history without bringing up the event, right? In John 18, Peter denies Jesus three times. And here, three times in John chapter 21, Jesus reaffirms Peter's love for him. And Jesus reaffirms that he wants him to do his kingdom work. It's not coincidence, is it? Jesus is lovingly drawing the poison out of the wound, and he's asking this for affirmation of Peter's love so that Peter can sense that he has been reinstated, as it were. So 
Jesus asks the same question. Peter gives the same answer, and Jesus gives this same response, even though it's kind of varied in its words, right? He says in uh, chapter or verse 15, feed my lambs, and in verse 16, it's tend my sheep, and in verse 17, it's um, Lord, you know everything, but feed my sheep. It's the same kind of idea. Certainly, Jesus isn't calling Peter to become an actual shepherd, right? You're so bad at fishing, why would you take care of sheep, right? Jesus is calling Peter to a role in his kingdom building. He's calling Peter to a role in the church that he is forming. In fact, Peter would go on later in 1 Peter 5, and he's going to address other shepherds, other pastors and elders, and he's going to say, you know, uh, hey, as a fellow elder, Right? He recognizes that Jesus has called him to this unique ministry. And so Jesus gives this string of commands to Peter. Tend my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Part of an elder's responsibility is to care for the people God has entrusted them to oversee. And so Peter is no different here. He's called to feed the sheep that he has been entrusted with. Finally, Jesus calls Peter to follow. Isn't that what he says there in verse 19? After saying this, he said to him, follow me. If you remember back in John chapter 1, John the Baptist is testifying to who Jesus is, and two of his disciples then start following Jesus, and Jesus is kind of uh, welcoming them, and he says, uh, you know, they say, hey, Jesus, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and see, right? this invitation to follow, and later on, he looks at Nathaniel, and he says, follow me, but that invitation is never given to Peter. In fact, interestingly, when, it, when we get to John 13, if you remember this, Jesus said to Simon Peter, um, or Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, you, but you will follow me afterward. So there's this tension that, that John or Peter and Jesus are having where Jesus or Peter wants to follow Jesus, but Jesus is telling him you can't. But now, Jesus opens the door for him to follow. And Jesus describes a time, excuse me. In fact, Jesus describes exactly where following him will, will lead Peter in verse 18. This is what he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you will not want to go. Jesus describes a time when, when Peter will not be free to do what he wants. He'll be in captivity. He'll be arrested. He'll be under the watch of the Romans. And eventually he will be, as tradition held, that he'd be hung on an upside-down cross because he doesn't deserve to die on the same, in the same way that Jesus did. He will be led in chains to his death. It's interesting to note that, that Peter said he was willing to die for Jesus in chapter 13, and now Jesus calls him to follow unto his own death. 
And what happens here is this weird little interaction in verses 20 through 24. Like Peter realizes that Jesus is in prophecy mode and he starts asking about, well, what about that guy? What about him? So look at verse 20. He says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned against or leaned back against him during the supper. And he said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the, amongst the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that, that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Jesus clarifies John's role. Peter gets curious and he starts asking questions. What about this man? And Jesus responds with a kind of, of non-answer. It's, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And then he reiterates his former statement. You follow me. I'm not worried. You shouldn't be worried about John. You shouldn't be worried about these others. You should worry about following me. Seems like people kind of got carried away with the statement. And so this folklore starts to happen that John wasn't going to die. And John just takes a moment to kind of correct this, right? And he does it in this gospel. But the gist of Jesus' statement is this, you follow me. It's the reiteration of what Jesus has already said to Peter. And I notice what's interesting here is it's not just Peter that follows Jesus, it's John, because in verse 24, he, he kind of outs himself. He says, this is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things. I'm the guy who is there. I'm the one who is writing this, and I also am following. That's why I've recorded this epistle. That's why I've written this gospel, so that you can hear about Jesus. And he goes on in verse 25, and he says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. If we wrote all the things that Jesus did, the world wouldn't be long or large enough to contain all that he had talked about here. Jesus did so much more, but these things are written for us to believe. What this story tells us is that Jesus meets his shamed disciples with particular graces. He brings provision. He directs them during this fishing trip gone wrong. He brings pause. He gives them a moment away from the chaos, and he brings purpose. Jesus is uh, interaction with Peter and John gives us a fuller sense that he's, his, he's defining his work and rest and how they relate to one another. See, what this shows us this morning, after Jesus's work and resurrection, that we are fed to feed. Christian, if you are in Christ, you are given grace to extend grace. You're given mercy to show mercy. You are given grace in Christ to do the kingdom work of telling others about grace. Someone has once described that the church is this place of, of, of one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That we are those that are recipients of grace and we're inviting others to come and receive this grace too. We have found rest in Christ, and we also are directing others to find grace here as well. Notice how Jesus interacts with, with his disciples here. First, Jesus gives genuine rest. 
Jesus meets his disciples at the point of their uttermost exhaustion. After they'd been up all night, after they had fruitless labor, Jesus meets them in their exhaustion. You know, it's funny to me that Jesus didn't have this conversation in the warm upper room. The previous two times when he met them, he didn't look Peter in the eye in front of the other 12 disciples and have the conversation with them in these other two interactions. He invites him or sees that he's going to do a night of fruitless labor and starts to talk to him in that point, in the lowest point. That's when Jesus shows up and gives his life-giving direction. So Jesus gives rest. Jesus gives work. In the midst of these disciples who are returning to their work, Jesus redirects them to this kingdom-oriented work, right? Feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my lambs. See, in the midst of their desire to work, Jesus calls them to something better. Let's be clear, right? Being a fisherman is good work. In fact, there's no such thing as bad work, is there? I guess you could say certain things are not wholesome. But what Jesus calls them to is a kingdom-minded orientation in the midst of the work they're doing. It's not bad to be a fisherman or an electrician or a plumber or whatever else it might be. Paul made tents while he preached the gospel. It's good for us to do work. God designed work before the sin, before sin ever entered the world, right? Genesis 2, God gives Adam and Eve work to do before sin ever happened in Genesis 3. You and I, Christian, we were made to work. And I imagine that we'll do work into eternity when we're present with Jesus. Work is not the problem. Sin is. What Jesus is inviting us to now is not necessarily to find what we might call Christian work or Christian vocation. It's to seek out our vocation with a Christian mindset, to see how we can please God in the day-in, day-out presence that we have in our workplace. If you make widgets, how can you make the best kind of widget to the glory of Christ? If you, uh, if you balance books as an accountant, how can you balance books to the glory of Christ? If you work in the factory line, how can you work in the factory line to the glory of Jesus Christ? How can you do those things with a kingdom-oriented mindset? Jesus gives us true rest. He he takes us out of our self-reliance and invites us to rest in his provision. But he also sets us to work. He sets us out to the world and says, you are my voice. You are the, the representative of my kingdom to this world. So Jesus gives rest. Jesus gives work. But in the midst of all of this, one of the most important things happens not just about rest and work. It's restoration. Kind of hidden in the text, John chapter 21 is this reunion that happens between Peter and John and Jesus. These men that had felt such guilt in the pit of their stomachs about their denial of Jesus, their their failure in one of the most important moments of their life, and yet Jesus meets them with abundant grace. You see that in our passage this morning? Jesus gives restoration. 
He takes time to lovingly speak with Peter. And he draws out through questions that Peter's genuine love for him. And he affirms Peter's continued role in his kingdom. Questioning's painful for Peter, isn't it? It gets to the heart of Peter's wound. By the end of this conversation, there's, there's no question. Jesus still loves Peter and wants him to be at work in his kingdom. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, my history is too hard. I've got so many skeletons in my closet. There's no way that God can ever use me to do good things for his kingdom purpose. If you knew the things I did, if you knew the things that I'm doing, God has no purpose for me. All we have to do is investigate the life of Peter, right? The man who said, oh, no, I'm not going to, I'm going to die for you, Jesus. And then in the same night said, I don't know him. It's worth noting this morning that all of this happens here in John chapter 21 because of what happened in John chapter 20, that this is an extension of the resurrection story, that really we're seeing an extension of, of Jesus's new life that he was raised to, and now Peter is invited to this new life, and John is invited to this new life, the, the, the power of resurrection from sin that was given to Jesus Christ, where he exemplified and exhibited his power in new life over sin and death. He extends to Peter. He extends to John. He extends to us right now so that you and I can be raised to new life and all of those skeletons in our closet can be eradicated and taken away. That's what grace is. You and I can be made new in Christ. We can sit by the fire and we can hear Jesus' voice and we can hear him call us to do life, to live out this life that he wants to give us. This is what Jesus does. It's the ongoing work of Jesus Christ. He takes sinners and makes them saints, and then he takes saints and he makes them workers. That's the pattern of what Jesus does. And he transforms us from this thing that's so selfish and rooted in our sinfulness, and he makes us selfless through his Spirit. Isn't that what he does? Isn't that the story that John's been telling us? Jesus grabs these ragtag group of guys. These people from Nazareth, Galilee, fishermen and tax collectors. And he spends his time with them and he teaches them and instructs them and they still don't get it. It's like bouncing off the front of their forehead. When he raises to new life, he calls an army of workers, sinners, saints, workers. It's the beauty of the gospel. 
this morning it stands to us that if we believe in Jesus, it's upon us then to follow him. It's the trajectory that we see in John 20 and 21. John 20 is all about belief, that word believe. And, and John sees the, the grave clothes and he believes and, and Mary believes and she says, Rabboni, and, and Thomas sees the scars and he believes and, and John invites us to believe. But in 21, the call is to follow. I want to call us this morning to follow in two particular areas. We can follow Jesus in genuine rest. We can follow Jesus in genuine rest. Some of us are running ourselves ragged. Feel that way this morning? You have piled high our responsibilities to the neglect of our souls. We have just added thing after thing after thing. And when you look at the weekly schedule, there is not even a bit of daylight for you. You've packed on kids things and adult things and church things and work things. And all of a sudden, your schedule is so filled with these things that you have no room for rest. You have no room to consider the state of your soul, let alone to care for it. So my encouragement to us this morning is this. Let's make provision for genuine rest. Let's make provision for genuine rest. Just hear me this morning. I think one of the most besetting sins for this group right here is just looking like we're busy. Just keeping up with the Joneses maintaining our Facebook feed so everything looks picture perfect and our Instagram feed by constantly doing activities that look family-oriented and good and righteous. What we need more than anything is to slow down and listen to the voice of our Savior, to sit with Him by the fire, have some bread and have some fish. And I'm not talking about genuine rest as vacations and Netflix binges. I'm talking about life-giving prayer, soul-enlivening Bible study, and rich fellowship with others. I'm calling us to make patterns in our life whereby we are fed. And I'm inviting us to sit with Jesus by the fire. So here's the thing, is that rest without work, it creates self-indulgence. So if we're worried about this, we can rest too much. We can orient ourselves to a kind of slothfulness that creates an overindulgence. That's why cruises exist. Have you ever thought about that, right? You go on a cruise, you can't go anywhere or do anything. You're going to sit by a pool and it's filled with food. That's why the ship is so big. It has so much food. It's ridiculous. Rest is not supposed to be given to slothfulness. Rest is to call us into genuine work. It's the second encouragement I have is that following Jesus, we should follow Jesus in kingdom building work. Not just follow Jesus and rest, but follow him in genuine kingdom building work. Listen, here's the thing, right? God creates some of us with different capacities. There are certain ones among us who can handle a certain workload. 
And then there's others of us that we're, we're going to have a minimal load capacity, right? I'm just going to be honest with you. My, my, my capacity for workload is, is fairly low. And I don't say that shamefully. This is the way the Lord has made me. I, I'm made to find good patterns of rest. I, I have to get eight hours of sleep each night. I, I have to find time for study and prayer. And I get overwhelmed when there's too many things going on. In fact, uh, Friday night, I was replacing my wife who was sick while we were um, running the concessions at a Newton basketball game. And so I'm the cashier, cashier this morning or this evening, and I was like completely overwhelmed, like doing basic math, like what's 250 plus 250. I couldn't do it. It was like too much for me, right? My capacity for anxiety is pretty low, and I'm coming to the place in my life at 42 where I'm just recognizing that. Some of us need to recognize our capacity might be low, and we need to invest in the things we invest in with very particular intention. Some of us might have higher capacity for workload. We might be able to take on three or four different tasks, and we might be able to do those well. But we have to stop and consider, what is it that the Lord has called me to do, and how do I invest in this kingdom that he's building? Christian, if you are in Christ, I'm just going to say this. You should be investing in his kingdom somehow. You should be giving of your time and your resources so that you can see God's kingdom be built up. That's part of what it is when Christ called you. There are countless opportunities here for that, by the way. You can hear the kids upstairs. We need children's workers. We need everything. We always need more volunteers. So if you are willing to come and be members with us, we would love to put you to work. But there are countless opportunities for kingdom work outside of the walls of this church. Even as you go to work, you might don't have to necessarily take on a formal ministry opportunity. You can be Christian at your workplace and be doing kingdom work. You can go to your small group and give answers that are so rich and thirsty for the gospel. You can serve others in your small group. You can pray for others while you're uh, getting ready for dinner or whatever else. You can serve God's kingdom work in countless ways. And so I call you to work. It's what God created you to do. See, just as rest without work creates self-indulgence, work without rest creates exhaustion. And so we got to find balance here, right? If we set ourselves to a kingdom work with, with no plan for rest, guess what? It's a, a, shelf, a small shelf life. You're going to burn out. And the things that are going to mark you are going to be irritability, disengagement from friends and others, constant low-grade frustration from exhaustion. That's what that life is going to look like. Let me give you a third picture. What would it be like for you to have a vibrant give and take with the Lord? To receive grace. And in the morning as you sit down with the scriptures and, and understand what he says, to pray those scriptures back, to find the fullness of life in the spirit, to, to walk with him and patterns of Christian fellowship, to, to be able to put on those things and, and to wear this gospel-rooted life so that when you go to work, it's the most natural thing to speak of your Savior. What would that life look like?
want to pray that God makes us these kinds of men and women. That we would be so filled and saturated with God's goodness in Christ that it would naturally overflow from us. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that you would give us a thirst and desire for your truth in the gospel. Help us to resonate so deeply with, with what Christ has done. To speak it to others. To encourage other believers to give ourselves in service. We pray that you would be glorified in this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hang on.